So this morning, after a couple weeks with um, uh, in different places, we're back in Thessalonians. Thanks for both Phil and Jeff for, for uh, preaching the word the last two weeks. But I'm excited to get back into this book. I think there's some really interesting things. Of course, I, whenever I get into God's word, there are depths and interesting things I love to get excited about talking about. In today's passage, it talks about how we ought to walk. Um, in order to please God. And I immediately be, began, as I thought about this, thinking about how in, in East Glenville, we have quite a few new babies in, in this congregation. And, and I, it, one of the most fun parts of being a new parent, you know, I'm a little ways away from that now, is that, that time when you're teaching them how to walk. Right? And just to watch them try to learn how to, to get up on their feet and take those steps. And, and as parents, you get anxious for it. You, you want to get them started, right? You want to enjoy that. And, you, you know, you, you, you hold them up a little bit and get them started with how, how to walk and take those first steps. And that's one of the most fun parts of, of being a parent um, in those younger years, Today, we're thinking about how we ought to walk as followers of Jesus in order to please God. And Paul brings that up a couple times. And here's my main contention, um, is that in order to walk with God and to be with him forever, as we're meant to be, we need to learn to walk in the ways of God. We need to learn to walk in his path, and his direction. We are made to, meant to know God and be with him forever. And in fact, the, the core message of, of the Gospels, the, the Bible, is that the Son of God came because we were walking away from God, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. We sang that like we, we walked away from God. Jesus came to reclaim people so that we could walk with him again. And his promise, right before he went back up to the Father, he says, I will be with you always. Through his spirit living on us, we can now walk with God, with Jesus, the Savior. And he says, no one can take you out of my hand. So because of his grace, we have been brought into a relationship with the Son of God. And now we walk with him. And to do so, we need to learn the ways of God, what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, it's not an easy road. In fact, it's a narrow road. And many people don't, you know, choose a different direction. It's a narrow road. And there's two things that will work against us, that will, that will fight against us as we try to do this. One is our own sinful nature inside. There's part of us that will resist following the ways of God. There's something in us that will say, no, 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 you go your own way, right? Again, I, that, that, I love that song, uh, the Come Thou Fount that we sang, prone to wander, prone to, to, to go my own way. There's something in us. Uh, the, the passage we read today was written by Apostle Paul in another place in Romans 7. Paul writes, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there beside me, leading me a different direction, right? 
I don't understand what I do. What I want to do is do what God wants. What I want to do, I, I, I don't do. Instead, I do what I hate to do. So there's this internal battle, and that's our sinful nature that will resist following in the ways of God. And we're going to come back to what God does about that. That's one part of what fights against us walking in the ways of God. The second thing is the society or culture we live in will seek to lead us in a different direction. Have you ever asked someone for directions and they led you astray? Whether they just they were lost themselves or whether they were just being a little mean. Like I, I can think of a couple times where I got led to a, ba- a wrong place. We cannot assume the society and culture we live in will lead us well in our life, will lead us in the right direction, will lead us in the ways of God. That's why I, I asked um, and, and encouraged people to, to read Psalm 1, and we started off with worship. And I think that's a warning at the beginning of the, the prayer book of the Bible of that we could be led astray. It says, blessed is the man, man or woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. There's, there's counsel out there, and the wicked sounds so strong, but just the counsel of those who do not know God. Beware there are influences out in the world that will lead us in the wrong direction. And I, I, it kind of gives you this picture as you go through this verse. You know, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Imagine you're walking along, you get in a conversation with someone, and you start to, to go the direction they're going. But as the conversation continues, you know, maybe you start talking more, and they get more influence over you. You stop walking, and next thing you know, you're standing. Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. And then as the conversation gets even more intense, and and you're really on board with them, you, you go ahead and just sit down, and next thing you know, you're sitting together talking. Who stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. There are influences that if you let them, they'll lead you to join them. And, and next thing you know, instead of following the ways of God, you'll be mocking those who are going that direction. You'll be going the wrong way. And so the alternative we have, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It is allowing the, the word of God to speak to us, to point us in the right direction. Jeff last week talked about how they found the book of the law and realized they had gone so far from, from living it out and they had to reorient everything in, in, in order to get back on track with God. And so this morning... As we, we, we come to this passage, what we have is, is Paul is writing to the believers in Thessalonica, and these are new Christians, people who had um, grown up in, in paganism, in, in the monotheism of their Greek city. So they'd grown up believing one way, but when they heard the message of Jesus, they came to believe it and receive it, and Paul and Silas, who had brought the message, had just started to teach them the ways of God when they had to flee the city because of opposition. And so now, 
Paul is writing back to the Thessalonians, and in this chapter, he gets, gets to the point, he finally gets to the point of getting into, all right, here's how you need to, here's what needs to happen in order for you to follow God's ways. And so he starts, finally then brothers. So all, the first three chapters, he, Paul was kind of laying the groundwork, setting up things. Now he's getting into the meat of his letter. And, and so he's saying, here are the instructions we gave you. And here's how you ought to walk in order to please God. And he says, and you've been doing this, and now we encourage you to do so even more. You've got to keep learning these ways. And, and following Jesus is something we never, we're always learning, right? We never get to the point where I got it down. There's always ways in which God has more to teach us and to, to learn to love him and to follow him. And so Paul's saying, okay, let's, let's talk about how to walk with God. And, and he's going to um, hit three areas of their life that as they follow God's ways, things they're going to uh, change. And so in verse 3, he starts off with the general idea, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is one of those big church words, but it's really actually very simple. It means to be made holy, or you could say holyfied, right? Our life needs to be holyfied. Now, what is holy? Holy is, is God's character and nature. We sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Our God cannot be compared to anything on, in this world. He made this world. He is above and beyond. He is good and right in all that he does. And his holiness is a part of his, his character. And he, what he wants to do is to bring his people in, into his holiness so that they could live with him. We're made to know and be known by him. So he said to the, the people long ago and the, the Israelites, he says in Leviticus 11, For I am Yahweh, the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. He says, I'm claiming you as my people. I, I took you out of slavery in Egypt, and now we're going to walk together. I'm going to be your God. It says, so you must be holy because I am holy. You must be sanctified. You must be holyfied. Leviticus 19 he repeats it. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Here's the problem. We can't be holy on our own. Remember that thing I said, that, that part of us, our sinful nature, that fights against us? There, there's that part of us that resists God's holiness, that God's, God's ways. And we are a messed up sinful people. We are broken, prone to wander, prone to go our own way. We can try to follow God's ways and laws, but ultimately we're going to stumble unless God puts it inside of us. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. You see what he does? Is he begins to work his holiness within us. We couldn't change our inner being on our own, but he begins to do it inside of us. He works it into our heart, into our nature, 
through his Holy Spirit. He begins to do a work within us, and then what do we do? We learn to walk it out. He works within, and we begin to learn to walk in his holiness. That's how it works. And it's a little like how you teach a baby to walk, right? When they're first starting, they can't lift up on their legs. They can't. And so, you know, you get anxious as a parent. You want to get them started, right? You, and so you, you get their, their little fingers and you're holding on to them and, you know, you're walking them around. You're walking them. But in the process, they're learning how to walk. That's kind of what God does with us as we learn to follow in his ways. And so... God's will is that we be made holy. So what does that mean? Here are the three areas that he's going to talk about. One is our, our sex life. One is our relationships with other people. And the third is our work life, our work ethic. So those three areas of our life come up in the rest of this passage. So um, the rest of verse 3 says, God's goal is that you would abstain from sexual immorality. One of the first areas, or one, a big area of our life that, that needs to be brought in line with God's ways is how we think about our, our, our sex life. And, and um, the word in this case is that we would abstain from porneia. Maybe you, you think of the word pornography. Those who do not know God often live according to the passions of their lust and desires. In this world, it's right, do whatever your heart says. Do whatever you want to do. But we live in this sex-drenched world. But the problem is if, if we do what it says, it will lead us down a life, a path full of pain and heartache and away from the joy of peace of God. Instead, we need to learn to bring our, our lives in line with God's attitude. It was the same in the Greek time. Um, these people in the Thessalonian church grew, grew up as pagans, and they learned from their culture a wrong path in regards to sex and marriage. Let me, let me read what, um, here's a Greek uh, writer, Demosthenes, what he said about marriage and women. And it was especially like there were certain rules for men and different rules for women back then. But he, he says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day to today bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. So that was the Greek attitude. Women, of course, you know, especially wives, they, they weren't to mess around. But the men, you know, well, they had options. And... That was kind of the Greek view of how things should work. And notice how ultimately it makes women as sexual objects for the use of men. That's how they were thinking of it. And that's the, the, the attitude of their culture. It is different in the word of God, in the Bible. What do we see in the Bible? We see God bringing together a man and a woman um, who would be partners in life, and, and to, to care for, to love each other, to know each other. And, and the Lord God gave sex as a great gift to be practiced within the security of a marriage relationship. That a man and a woman would make a commitment together before God that they would stay with each other throughout life. 
And they would stay together in sickness and in health and good times and in bad so that they can join together in this special way. See, God knows the power of our sex drive. And he wanted to put it within the context of this kind of relationship so that there would be security and safety for each of us. And made it this way. The power of our sexual desire needs to be contained within the structure of a marriage relationship to keep it from doing damage to people. That is God's design for sex and marriage. And that's what we're called to do to live in his holiness. The world has a low view of marriage. Sexual intercourse is a plaything and ultimately leads to men and women seeing each other as things to be used rather than persons who are worthy of love, persons who, who are, are loved by God. Christianity teaches a high view of sexual intercourse. It is a wonderful gift for, for a husband and wife to express love to one another. So that's, that's the question. And, and, you know, Paul says, who are you going to listen to? You know, whoever disregards this word is disregarding the word of God. Who will you listen to on this? Our culture? Or are you going to seek what God has to say? Verse 4 starts to spell out more of this. And in fact, um, it says, in order to, to live, you know, abstain from sexual immorality, it says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. There's an interesting translation issue in this passage I want to talk a bit about. The word for body is, is in this passage is skios. It's not the normal word for body. And so the, the word skios means vessel or jar. Maybe you've ever heard the phrase, we're, we're earthen vessels or jars of clay, that, that's one case where the same word is used to refer to our bodies, right? Um, the word for control, that, that verb in Greek could just as easily, in fact, more likely be translated as gain or acquire. And so there's some question whether what Paul is referring to, what is the skewos supposed to mean? Is it supposed to mean our body? Some scholars think it should be translated that each one of you ought to acquire his own wife, that the vessel is referring to a wife, not body. Um, I don't think that's right, because first of all, the Bible is speaking to both men and women in this passage. Even though it uses male language, there were men and women in the congregation, and they're both meant to hear it. So it's not just about acquiring um, a, a wife, and also the, it's about gaining control of the vessel he has given us, of the, the body that we have, of the, the ways that we need to, to do it. And Paul's using a little bit of an idiom. He's, he's in effect saying, you need to learn to keep it zipped up, is the, uh, the effective, Paul, what Paul's saying. You know what? Keep it zipped up. Keep it under control. Um, Unlike the Gentiles, those who do not know God, who live in the passion of lust, who, who give in to whatever their heart desires, we need to, to gain control, 
that we might live rightly before God. And he gives four reasons and even four ways to to encourage us to do that as we walk through the rest of this passage. So verse 5, it talks about the those who do not know God. One reason we do this is because we know God. We, we know the God who loves us and we, we want to follow in his ways. It's, it, it's thinking about how, well, the, the Greek mythology really kind of leads to their ethic on this. I don't know what you know about Zeus or the rest of the Greek mythology, but let's put it this way. Zeus would make... Uh, Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein seemed like a gentleman in the way he treated the women of the earth. He was always, he, Zeus had a wife up in you know, Mount Olympus, Hera, and Hera was always angry at what Zeus was doing. So when the Greeks were keeping concubines and mistresses, they were following the, what their gods did. Well, our God is not like that. Our God is holy, holy, holy. And so that leads us to want to, to learn to follow in his ways and to learn to, to live in the purity that God calls us to. The second reason that this kind of points us to as is to, is to why and how to live in the, these ways is to understand that the language of brother and sister comes up. It says that no one would transgress and wrong his brother or you could say or sister in this matter. We, as followers of Jesus, are called brothers and sisters. We, we, we're brought together into the family of God. Um, and we're called to treat each other not as, as just objects to be used. We're called to treat each other as people loved by God the Father. As people who, who God cares about. And so Timothy, in 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 another place, the Paul writes to, to young Timothy, and he says, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Right? That's how we're to start to view each other. The person that we might be tempted to do something we're not called to do with is someone that God loves and is a brother or sister. So that's the second reason. A third reason, it says the Lord is an avenger. Now, that would make an interesting twist to the Marvel series if they tried to make that into a movie. But but, uh, the other way to translate that would be executor of justice. The Lord is an executor of justice. And so it means he upholds this, this thing. Think about this way. Whoever you might be tempted to act wrongly with is someone who God is their father. Especially, you imagine a, a, a boyfriend meeting the father of his potential date, you know, and I always wondered if maybe I should be cleaning out a shotgun when my daughters bring home some guy, you know, to, just to strike a little. But imagine, you know, the, the, the father you're dealing with is the God of the universe, right? Like that, that's the thing. He's the executor of justice, um, and if you're ignoring these, these commands, you are ignoring, you're disregarding God. In Malachi 2, um, in one of the prophets, the, the people are asking, God, why don't you hear us? Why don't you hear our prayers? Why aren't you blessing us? I thought you loved us. And here's God's answer. But you say, why does he not? 
It says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? God is holding them to account to breaking their covenant with their wives. They, they traded their, their wife, their wife of their youth in for a younger model. And God says, how, how can I bless you when you've done that to her? God is the executor of justice in our relationships. And then the fourth reason he gives for, for holding to his commands on sexual morality is that he gives us the Holy Spirit. He says, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And moreover, that spirit is at work doing what? He is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. And he's giving us the inner strength to begin to walk in the ways of God. To, to think differently, to do differently, to not be ruled by our passions and lust as are the Gentiles, but to be guided and led by his spirit in all that we do. So, as I said, there are three areas of our life. I've kind of spent a good chunk of time on the area of our sex life. The, the, the second area that he talks about is, comes to do with our relationships with others. And this will be a little shorter. Paul only has a couple of verses in 9 and 10. And, and so the second area, it talks about our Philadelphia. Philadelphia. If you're from Western, Eastern PA, you might say Philadelphia. But in Greek, it'd be philo, philadelphia. It is the love for each other that we have as brothers and sisters in the faith. Um, and Paul says, concerning this philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So Paul is praising them because in, in the church in Thessalonica, they've already been following that. Um, they've all, in fact, that it's they're they're doing it so much. It's it's they've gotten a reputation among the churches in Macedonia as those who who love one another. They've learned to put it into practice. And and Paul says, you know, I was with you such a short time. We didn't really talk much about that. You must have been taught by God to to love one another. And the truth is, we need to be taught by God to to learn to love others. There's it, it goes against. What, what we are. I know it sounds, oh, we just, we just love one another. Love is more than warm feelings for people, and, and those warm feelings are good, but love is learning to put the interest of others ahead of yourself. Love is learning how to, to, to confess when you've, you've blown it. Love is owning up to our failures. Love is asking for forgiveness. Love is being patient with those. Love is forgiving. All these things that, that are not easy in our relationships with one another. And God brings us into a fellowship of believers so that we can learn how to do that. We learn how to do that here in the body of Christ so that we, if we could do it with one another and then maybe we could start doing it with the people of this world. And so our mission here at East Glenville, what we're about, learning to love God and love others as we follow Jesus together. I hope as you've kind of joined in on this fellowship that God is teaching you more and more how to love one another and how his love can, can rule in our lives. That's the second area of life that's going to 
happen as we, as we grow in his sanctification. The third area is that of our, our work life. God desires his people to have a good work ethic. So here it talks about how it says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So I've been thinking about what does it mean to make it your ambition to live quietly? And, and in some ways, it's, it's talking about um, don't try to fix all of society, right? Um, don't, don't, you know, they, they were living in the, uh, the Roman Empire, right? You, you know, we're, they weren't called to, to, to overthrow the city government or to kick out Caesar somehow, right? That, you know, they're called to live the lives that, that God enabled them to do and that would be the way they would change the world, not by by starting an insurrection. Um, it also, I think it also meant mind your own affairs. I, I've kind of learned something. It's not wise to go telling people how bad they are. I've discovered this, you know, especially when you're talking about the, the arena of sexual ethics, right? Um, sometimes Christians have this idea that we can tell people how to live and they will want to hear that and rejoice at being told. I, it just doesn't work. Um, sometimes I learn new four-letter words when I try to do that. So uh, now when someone says yes to Jesus and they are, are being, pro, you know, when they're ready to, to follow him, I think there is a place for gently teaching people to learn to walk in God's ways. But it's not the church's job to impose morality upon our society. You know, um, Paul says, pr- pray to the government that, that they will give you the space that you need to, to follow my ways, to live quietly in your towns, that you'll be at peace. Now, I believe as the gospel spreads and people respond to him, we will change society. But, but that happens from the bottom up, not from the top down. It's not the church's job. Um, to fix everything. It's our job to bear witness to the Savior. And, and a part of that, as a part of living quietly, it says to work with your hands. And I, I think that means in some ways a job that, that has value, that is worthwhile, and that will be a positive influence in this world. Learn a skill, learn a craft, learn to do something that you will make the world a better place as you do it. So one area that the Greek and the Roman culture would, I think was having a negative effect was their patronage system. One aspect of this culture would be you, someone who didn't have much might seek a wealthy person to be their benefactor. And rather than doing a real job, you would just make yourself available to that, that patron. And... Kind of like they would support you. Kind of like a, a rap singer with a posse or someone with an entourage, right, that just sort of follows along. Here, here's a, one of the Bible commentators. 
Here's what he's suggesting might have been happening in the church that, that prompted Paul to say this. He says, members of the lower status were attaching to benefactors and were relying on them for livelihood. In, in this situation, Paul was discouraging such clients from taking the advantage of the hospitality of Christian patrons. And so, in this case, one could read 4.11 like this. Carry out your work with your own hands and be responsible for your own affairs. So he didn't want, you know, Christians who are maybe less well-off or poor just coming to church so they could get hooked up with a rich Christian patron, right? He says, you need to get your job so you're not depending on others. And Paul and Silas has set the example. When they were in Thessalonica bringing the gospel, they, they worked with their hands. They, they supported themselves even as they were trying to leave the city. Paul was a tent maker, and so he would be sewing and making tents during the day so that he could preach the gospel in, in the evenings. It says, you need to do that as well. There is honor in work, and it is a good a skill or a craft with which we can bless others. Um, I, I called to mind, I remember my dad talking about a co-worker who was very vocal about his faith and the church that he went to, but my dad said, this guy was lazy. He, he wouldn't, he, he, he just looked to avoid as much work. To walk properly before outsiders, we should be people who went, our work ethic, um, that, we, that we're doing what we're called to do and doing it well. We're not, not taking advantage of our, our employers, but, but our work, in a sense, points to our faith in Christ in that way. So the three areas, our sex life, our relationships with one another, and our work life, our work ethic. What I, as I bring this to a close, I, I want you to think about two things. First of all, how has society in any of these ways pointed you in the wrong direction? Have you gotten bad advice or bad directions from our culture on how to live in these areas? And you've had to learn a different way as you've learned to follow Jesus. And the second question is, which of these three areas is God speaking to you right now? Which of these three areas, maybe which, which one, would God say, you need to be sanctified in this area? This is where you're going the wrong direction. This is where I need to teach you to walk and take steps in this area. So before we go into our closing worship, I want, we're going to take a minute or so of just self-examination prayer. And I just want you to invite God's Spirit to speak to you. Where do you need to apply this? Which of these three areas is the Holy Spirit saying, focus on this right now? So let's invite God's Spirit to do that. Father, right now we bring our lives to you. We thank you that you are doing the work of sanctification inside of us. Speak to each of us individually now on, on how we are to walk with you.